Morning. How are we doing? Yeah, three people are. Great. <laughs> Thanks for coming and joining us. It's always good to look out and see faces. It's really dull to preach to an empty room, I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, we're in this series, we're looking at Acts, we've been wandering our way through. Um, Where we're picking up today um, in Acts chapter 11, we're actually picking up halfway through a story that we looked at two weeks ago, right before Easter hit. So, um, we're going to spend some time, we're going to read Acts chapter 11, we're going to spend most of our time in the last part of the passage, but I want to make sure we read it uh, and put it in its context. So, Peter's story was, was Acts chapter 10. He's had this moment. The gospel is going forth. He's had this vision from God that is the moment that the gospel is going to break out in from the Jewish people and into the Gentile people. So as he gets into chapter 11, he is kind of recapping what just happened. So let's read it, um, and, th- and then we'll see where we go from here. So this is Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheep being let down from heaven by its four corners and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord, nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and then it was pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. He told us how he'd seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he'd come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave to us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When he heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. We're gonna pause there, we're gonna go on in a minute. I just want to quickly draw attention to a couple of things. So, so remember what's going on here. At this point, the gospel has been spread because the believers have been scattered because of persecution, and they're taking the gospel to Jews, and they believe that Jews and Gentiles are supposed to be separate. So in, in, in Acts chapter 10, this paradigm-breaking moment happens where God is revealing to Peter that the, the Gentiles are not these unclean people that you're supposed to be separated from, but these are the very people that you're going to be called to take the 
gospel to. You can go back and listen to the Acts chapter 10 message because remember, what, what was really happening was their paradigm and their prejudice was being exposed and being revealed and being challenged and they were told to let those, God was tearing down the walls so that they could take the gospel where it was supposed to go. So at this moment, you know, what's happened? The event has happened. And um, Peter's had the vision. He's gone and ate with these Gentile believers. And, and the thing that I want to say here is the believers hear about it and they have an issue. Peter has responded to the voice of God. He's a man of truth. He's full of the spirit. He's listened to what God wanted to say. He's gone and done it. And the church are the criticizers, right? <laughs> that gets a little close to home, doesn't it? <laughs> um, but this verse right here, like the, the church don't get it. He walks up, he shares the story of what happened. And I just want to draw attention to what the response was. When they heard it, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so even to Gentiles, God had granted repentance that leads to life. The only thing I want to say to wrap up that part of the story is the church was responsive to God. When they saw God moving, they looked at the evidence, they looked at the fruit, they examined the scriptures and when they heard the testimony of God working they let their paradigms fall and they walked into what it God was that God wanted to do um, and so I just think it's an amazing moment of these people that weren't part of the story um, letting their paradigm fall as they evaluate the evidence of the spirit moving and then getting on board with what God wants to say you know, when, when God challenges our paradigms, it's not easy. It's not comfortable where we've got our boxes of how God moves and we restrict him or, or we give him formulas. It's uncomfortable when he begins to change those things. So anyway, moving on. I just wanted to make sure I, I, I addressed that. So moving on. Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. Now, those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first to Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each, uh, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So the story up till now, you know, starting back at the beginning of, of, of Acts chapter 1, Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead, he was resurrected, he appeared to his disciples, he ascends to heaven, he sends out his spirit, and his spirit is poured out. 
The church is persecuted, the church is scattered, so the believers end up scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, preaching the gospel to the Jews round about. Um, the story that, that we're reading, the part of the story we're in right now is where God is blowing open the world, and he's helping them shift from ministering the gospel to the people that look and sound just like them, to being willing to go out and reach out to the other people in the world that look and sound not a whole lot like they do. So this is, this is an important moment. Um, th there's a thing in, in biblical literature, there's a, there's a linguistic term called inclusio. And inclusio, like included. Usually what it means is there's a passage in scripture and there'll be one thing said and then the same thing will be repeated. And it's a, a sort of memory device or a pay attention device for the people reading or listening that these two things are sandwiching in content in the middle to, to mark its importance. So what is happening in the middle of this is the ending of an inclusio that started a little bit before. So, so let's look at this. Acts chapter 8 in 6 and 7, Stephen was martyred for his faith. And as a result of his martyrdom, it says at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, on that day, great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So that was the transition point in Acts chapter 8, as the gospel began to spread out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. But then at this point in, in Acts chapter 11, it's like everything we've done so far was kind of like brackets. He's jumping back into the story uh, that he's given a little detour from. So he's going, back. now those who had been scattered by the perse persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, they traveled on as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. So, so with these two little verses, they're letting us know the stuff happening in between was significant. The gospel was spread through persecution. People were scattered and they went to the Jews only. Some events have happened in chapter 8, 9, and 10 that are about different people than the Jews receiving the gospel. And then they bring us back to this part of the story. So something's changed between Peter sharing the gospel to the Gentiles, between Saul's conversion, and between the work that they've done with this vision and starting to spread the gospel out, he's setting up that this part of the story is concluded and the gospel is now broken open for the whole world. Um, so now, no longer is it gonna be the gospel being spread only among the Jews, but to the rest of the known world. So that wraps up, essentially, the part of the story, Acts is is organized. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we've seen chapters 1 through 7, it's in Jerusalem. Chapters 8, 9, and a little bit of 10 is, is uh, Judea and Samaria. And from this point on, everything about the gospel acts is what does it look like when the word is taken to the ends of the earth, to every nation, tongue, and tribe. So we're going to spend the rest of the time today looking at kind of this last little part of the passage at Barnabas. Um, all of a sudden, this character is dropped back into the story, um, and, and he plays a, a key kind of secondary role in the narrative. But whenever there's a good character like this, we always have to look at him and ask the question, like, so what did I learn from Barnabas? How can we, as a church, be more like Barnabas in the way that we walk in this earth? Um, so we're going to look at him, and I want to look at five things about Barnabas um, that should be a challenge and an encouragement to us as we figure out how we're supposed to be living out our faith today. So the first thing that we would learn from Barnabas is encourage others. Nice and simple. Encourage others. I think it's fascinating. Barnabas isn't actually called Barnabas. 
So when I say we're going to talk about Barnabas, everyone nods. But if I'd said we're going to talk about Joseph, the Levite from Cyprus, you'd be like, who's that? Um, his name is Joseph. Um, but he's this person. The, the apostles had encouraged him, had encountered him. They'd watched the way he lived. They'd watched his life of generosity and comfort and consolation and teaching. And they gave him this name, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. We tend to call people things like son of a gun. Um, <laughs> son of encouragement. My question would be, just to get us going and warmed up, if someone was to look at your life and your faith, if they were to look at you and kind of take a summary of your life, son of or daughter of what are they going to call you? Are they going to call you daughter of grace? Are they going to call you son of mercy? Are they going to call you daughter of bitterness? Are they going to call you son of gossip? Are they going to call you son of sexual immorality? Are they going to call you daughter of hope and investment? Like, if, if, if the church was to look at you and give you a new name, what name are they going to give you? What aspect of your life is going to stand out? I think aiming to be called son or daughter of encouragement is, is a really good goal. I want to tell you a, a little story. I was, uh, when I first moved over here from Scotland, I was at Multnomah, um, and within the first year, they asked me to speak at the missions conference they were doing. And like the, I, I take speaking really seriously, and I feel the weight of it, and so it wasn't, it wasn't a big gig by, by any means of it, but I just felt the pressure that I really wanted to encourage people. I wanted to build them up, and I wanted to communicate God's word in whatever form that was going to take to the people that were in front of me. And so I remember preparing for it and just feeling the weight and feeling a bit anxious, and I just really wanted to do a good job. And, um, and I was walking through the campus one day, and I bumped into this girl who was in our classes at Multnomah, who I, I knew a little bit, but didn't know her all that well. Her name was Monica. And I remember standing, <coughs> my wife, uh, and I remember as I walked in, like, just, we just kind of were going different ways past, like, oh, how are you? And I was like, I'm doing all right. How are you feeling about tonight? You're speaking right. And I was like, yeah, just nervous. Like, just feel the weight of it. I want to do a good job. Oh, you'll be great. You always do great. So you'll be fine. And I was just like, you know, I, I just don't, ugh, I, I just, I feel the weight and I want to do a really good job. And I remember standing there talking to Monica and she just spoke encouragement after encouragement after encouragement over my life. And I remember walking away from that encounter as she left. There, at that point, there was nothing romantic going on between the two of us. But I remember leaving that moment going, man, she is so encouraging. That's the kind of person I want to be around. Like, I need to keep her close because I want that kind of encouragement in my life. Um, the difference it makes to us when we feel encouraged and built up, it, it makes all the difference. So if we were to be a people who were known as sons and daughters of encouragement, what difference would it make in the world? Um, I, I've said this several times. The dominant theme kind of in culture right now, they call it cancel culture, right? How can we tear down the people around about us? So someone tweets something that was idiotic, our response is, let's get them fired and rip them down. We won't give them a chance to apologize and rectify it. We're just going to tear them down. When someone says something that's of a theological view or a political view or an ethical view that's different from us, our response is, let's not engage in a dialogue and encourage them in their pursuit of truth. It's like, let's tear them down. Let's block them. Uh, let's hide them from our, 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 our Facebook feed so that we're not interacting with them anymore. Our world is a world of cancel culture. We're in a season where the world rejoices in tearing people down. What difference do you think it would make 
to the world's perception of the church if every person in the church was known as a son or daughter of encouragement. When they're, when they're sitting terrified about saying what's on their mind, terrified about the consequences of what they're experiencing, what if they were like, I need to find a Christian because those people are the ones that always encourage us. Um, so Barnabas, the son of encouragement, is an example to us. Make a commitment to be a person of encouragement. Yes, there's times where we need to correct someone. Yes, there are times for rebuke. Yes, there are times to speak the truth in love. But I think sometimes we go there too readily. <laughs> so, so let's commit as a church to be people who, who strive to encourage others. So that's number one. Number two, second thing you can learn from Barnabas, watch for God's grace. It says in verse 23, when he arrived, they called for Barnabas. When he arrived, arrived he saw what the grace of God had done and was glad. If you go all the way back to my first sermon series here, we were looking at the prayers of Paul. Week two, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter one, and one of the prayer points we looked at and, and said, let's pray this over our church. Pray that we would have grace lenses to see the world. Um, so many times when you encounter the truth in Scripture in these moments, they don't come in looking at all the things that are wrong, ready to critique the people around about. They come in with grace lenses. Like, where is God already at work? Where is this person hungering for truth? Where is this person seeking identity? Where is this person looking for connection? Where is the evidence that God has already been revealing something to them? Well, let's, let's walk in attentive to that. Um, in our pre-service prayer time today, I mean, we, we practiced that in essence. We all prayed and then we broke into groups at the end and said, hey, what was on your heart? And, and, and as people shared, what was the evidence of God's grace? Almost everybody shared something about the compassion they felt for someone that was broken or hurting or ill or struggling. And it's like it's evidence of God's grace in our church. God is stirring compassion for the broken and the needy and the ill. Um, do we have the eyes to see it when it's in front of us? Um, and it's easy to see something come up multiple times and forget that God is at work. It's, it's easy to be in a conversation with someone and they bring up the same thing. Our political system's broken. How are we ever going to fix it? And every time you're in a conversation with them, they bring up the, the political system's broken. How are we going to fix it? They're looking for a solution for how the world gets better. It's evidence of God's grace. They're dissatisfied with the fallen world system and they're hungering for an alternative. Do you see the grace of God? Um, you see it when people come walking in the doors of church. Whether they're a believer or not, whether they're um, really mature, immature, whether they're mature and stuck in their brokenness, people walk in the doors of church. Why? Because God's grace is at work. And you're here because you're hungry for it. Do you see the, the hunger for, for God in the room? Do you see his grace at work? Are you attentive? So we need to, as a church, cultivate. There's habits and disciplines that we can practice to cultivate the eyes that see God's grace at work. Um, the biggest hindrance to seeing God's grace at work in others is when your eyes are too busy looking at yourself. Right? Looking at ourselves, looking at our problems. It's like, oh, where's God? I can't see he's working in Kim because I'm too busy looking at myself. So we need to lift our eyes up and cultivate the ability to see God's grace round about us. The third thing we learn from Barnabas is this. Be true to Christ. When he arrived and saw that the grace of, what, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. 
Remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. So first of all, the only reason he can encourage everyone else to be true to the Lord with all their hearts is because he was true to the Lord with all his heart. And again, this is where we, we get it so wrong in, in, in the church around the world. I mean, it's a, it's a fallen human nature problem. We like to ask everybody else to be true to Christ with all their hearts while we give them only a percentage of ours, right? I'm okay with my little sin issue over here. I'm okay with my over-shopping, my overspending, my overeating, my over-drinking. I'm okay with my resentments and my criticisms and my bitterness, but that thing you're doing is not okay. You've got to be true to Christ with all your heart, right? I'm glad people are laughing because I feel like I'm confessing a bunch of stuff and you're all like, what an evil pastor we have up there. Uh, we got to have this right first if we want to be able to do it to others. You know, we've been praying uh, this prayer uh, for the last several weeks at the end of the service to be true to Christ, to be kind to people, and to take the gospel to the nations. It says, Father, uh, oh, I just forgot my, the, the, own, the own prayer. Help us to live this day to the full, being true to you in every way. Uh, Jesus, help us to give ourselves away to others, being kind to everyone we meet. Spirit, help us to love the lost, proclaiming Christ in all we do and say. But that commitment to be true to Christ, there's a reason we're praying this at the end of every service, because I want us regularly declaring these truths, that we're going to be true to him, that it's going to be expressed in kindness to others, and it's going to send us out to take the gospel to the nations around about us. Um, we need to be true to Christ. Like him, we need to teach others to be true to Christ. And again, as we we're praying this morning, like lots of us had on our hearts in prayer, how do we figure out when we speak the truth? Because it's important that someone hears it and their sin is challenged. When is it important to hold back and love and care? And it's a delicate balance. We're not always called to speak the truth over everyone all the time. Uh, some of us speak the truth too readily and we need to learn to stay silent. Some of us are willing to love and love and love and love and love and just permit people to walk in their brokenness and never lift a finger to help. And some of us in that situation need to learn to speak up and say the things that God wants to say to encourage and to set people free. Being true to Christ, it's about knowing his word and walking in it. Um, knowing what the truth says, knowing how to offer it as hope to the people round about that we would live true to him and we would encourage the people round about us to be true to him too. The third thing we learn from Barnabas is that we should seek, like him, to be good and spirit-filled and faith-filled. You could put this as be full of the spirit, have the fruit of the spirit. Like it describes him, he was a good man, full of the spirit and faith. And as a result, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. What are the fruit of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So these, these descriptions, he's good and he's full of faith, are essentially fruits of the Spirit at work in his life. So are, would the people around you look at you and say, he or she is a good person? Like goodness marks their life. Within the church, would people look at you and say, this is a person full of the Spirit? Like they exude love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. They know the word and it pours out of their life. Um, they hear from God and they're regularly sharing stories. You know, God put this in my heart and I acted on it. Um, or are we people that just kind of turn up, do our thing uh, as we've always done and then walk away? We want to be people full of the Spirit. We want to be people filled with faith. The best way to grow your faith is to use it right? 
The best way to grow your faith is to use it. If you're looking going, oh, I don't have enough faith, well, we got to start stepping out in faith because when you step out and do something you don't think you can do and God shows up is when our faith is increased. Um, we want to be a church that's filled with goodness, filled with the Spirit, and full of faith. The fifth and, and last way here that we can learn from Barnabas is to be looking for people. I preached a message, I don't know, 20 years ago now. Man, I'm old enough to say that. That's really bad. Uh, I didn't shave this morning, so I'd look a little bit older. Uh, uh, can take 20 years off just with a little razor. Uh, I preached this message to, to a bunch of, uh, of teens and young adults. Be looking for someone that's looking for someone. And we're talking about discipleship. As a young person walking out there, if I'm looking for a mentor figure in my life, I don't want someone that's sitting around just not doing anything. I'm looking for someone that's looking for someone. Their eyes are out on the world trying to find people to invest in. Those are the people I want to be invested in. Uh, and so if you're here and you're young, be looking for someone that's looking for someone. So, so who do you know that is actively investing in other people and go to them and say, hey, I want you to invest in me. But for those of us who are older, you've got to look and say, am I actively looking for people to invest in? Am I ready? Now, investing, again, investing in someone doesn't mean I'm going to take what I know and shove it down your throat, right? Sometimes we call that investing in people. Investing in people, what, to be looking for people, what's it mean? It means you sit with them and you listen to them. That's, that's a novel thing in this day and age where everyone just wants to scream their opinions. Um, to, to stop and to listen, to know who they are, to provide a safe space for them to share what's really going on inside. Again, cancel culture. We live in a culture where people are terrified to share what's really going on inside because they're going to be torn down. They're either going to be torn down by the people outside the church or they're going to be torn down by the people inside the church. Um, so creating a safe space where they can share without judgment the issues that they're dealing with. And then from that place, to be able to offer them wisdom, Here's another principle that's important for those of you who have a heart for investing in others or are going, I would love to, I don't know how to. The younger generation doesn't want to hear your conclusions. They want to hear the process that led you to your conclusions. What we tend to share is, I believe this. I don't care that's what you believe. That's not what I believe. I want to know how you got from my age to believing so firmly what you believed. And so, do you have the ability to look at your life and say, I have this conclusion. How did, I, how did I come to know it? Turns out I just heard it spoke over and over and over and over and over again at church. I've never actually evaluated it for myself, so if you want to believe it, just be in church, right? But some of us, you come to a conclusion because you've studied and you've reflected and your brokenness and other people's situations and God intervening in your life and a dream and a book that you read— and people want to hear, like, I came to this conclusion, but this is the process I went through to get there. That offers them more than just giving them the answer to the question. You know, the school system knows this. They've been trying to figure out for a long time, how do we better educate kids? You don't just give them a bunch of information and then give them a test at the end. You have to help them learn for themselves. And they've come up with all sorts of unique and innovative ways to try and help cultivate self-learning. When you sit down with someone, don't just give them your conclusion. Say, you can give them the conclusion. You know, this is where I've come to. Let me tell you kind of the process I went through to come to this conclusion. And then they can evaluate your process. And, and what may happen, they may not uh, end up agreeing with your end result, but they'll walk through the process knowing that they have a better process. They'll be able to imitate your process of seeking God 
and gathering wisdom to be able to come up with their own conclusion that they can stand on. <sighs> be looking for people. You know, in this, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. You jump back in the story, what happened? He'd, uh, Saul was, was sharing the gospel uh, the people round about were trying to kill him. And so the, the disciples round about, they, sh they sent him off. They shipped him off to Tarsus. So he's up kind of in hiding. And the scripture tells us that he's sharing the, the gospel and going from synagogue to synagogue. So at this point, Barnabas is needing some help. And he's thinking, I'm looking for someone that can do this. And he's like, Saul. And he goes, the word here for, that he uses for looking for Saul is the same word that is, it's only used, this exact form of the word is only used three times in the New Testament. And it's when Mary and Joseph have left Jesus in the temple and they go looking for him. It's not like, hey, I'm going to look for something. It's like diligently searching with purpose and intent, almost frantic um, to try and find. So there's an intentionality to the way Barnabas goes about looking for Saul. You know, I, I, I've had... Uh, many conversations like this. I had a conversation this week with someone. I sat down for coffee, and they said, and it breaks my heart when I hear these things, young guy, lots of potential, really gifted, really solid, really tender to the Lord, and he says, no one has ever really taken the time to invest in me. Been in the church 20 years, kind of wandering in, in, in situations, no one has ever really taken the time to invest. Um, there are lots of people like that in, in the church. There are ministries that do great, big, flashy worship things, bring in great speakers, they provide lots of food, bunches of young adults come, they spend time together, they all end up dating and get married. Um, but, but they end up leaving at the end of the day going, no one is investing in me, no one is teaching me how to do this stuff. So there are a bunch of young people in the world looking for people to invest in them. Are you looking for someone? Um, God wants to use you to impart truth into the lives of other people. Are you, are you looking for them? I, uh, this is my story. I mean, I, I grew up in a Church of Scotland church. I grew up in a church that, that didn't have a strong discipleship core. Um, and I spent lots of years in the church, uh, and at one point, lots of years feeling like I was called into ministry. And like, no, there's, there's not like a class that churches offer like, come here to learn how to be in ministry if you feel like you're called into ministry. They don't tend to do altar calls very often. It's like an altar call, like, in the church I was in, if you want to give your life to Jesus, come down to the front, people will pray for you. And I would sit there going, are they going to do, like, if you feel like you're called into ministry, come down to the front? Like, is that, is that how you get in ministry? No one had ever sat with me and asked me questions. No one had ever said, hey, you look like you're really into this church thing. Like, is there more going on in your life? Um, I hit a point in my 20s when I was in college, I was ready to walk away from my faith. I was trying to reconcile my own life journey, my own brokenness with the truths of Scripture, and I was just frustrated. Um, I was looking at the church and just seeing a bunch of hypocrisy, and I was like, I don't want to be part of this. I was a young man feeling called into ministry. No one in the church seemed to notice or care, um, and I was fed up. I was, I was doing a math degree. Of course I was fed up. I was doing a math degree, and I was like, why am I even doing this? This is a waste of everyone's time, and I was like, I'm just ready to drop out of college. I'm ready to walk away from faith. It would be so much easier easier just to just to turn my back on all of this and one day in, in Starbucks I met a guy from the states from the Pacific Northwest we got in a quick conversation the end of which he said to me how would you feel about letting me disciple you 
Like, I would love to just sit with you and read through scripture with you. I feel like God is doing something in your life, and I would love to help cultivate it. And when he said it, it was like, at that point, 20 years of like hungering for investment. Just like, yes, yes, I will. And eight weeks later, we were planting a church together. It's like kind of crazy. Um, But he was looking for someone to invest in. I was hungry for someone. Are you looking for people? Barnabas was a person that was looking for people. Um, You know, you see it in in other places in Acts. You jump back a little bit, Acts chapter 9. When, when Barnabas came to Jerusalem, uh, when Saul came to Jerusalem, so Saul's just been converted, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he'd preached fearlessly, fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So here you have Saul. He's been converted to his faith. Uh, he's ready to go transform the world, and the church was rejecting him. Barnabas was looking for someone. Barnabas had cultivated the eyes to see God's grace at work. Barnabas was ready to encourage. Barnabas was, was true to Christ and ready to encourage people in the same process. And so what did he do? He went to Saul. He listened to his story, and he became his advocate to the church. This person may look like their life is a mess, but God's hand is in them. Their story is legit. I've seen it. Let them come and be part of the work that we're doing. A little bit later in this story, we'll see this. Barnabas and and Paul are are doing ministry together. They're they're trying to figure out who they're taking on this mission trip with them. Barnabas wants to take John, also called Mark, with them. Paul didn't think it would be wise to take him because he deserted them before uh, and hadn't stayed with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark, the deserter, the one that walked out of them in the middle of of their journey, the one who failed when persecution came. Barnabas was the type of person, he saw God's grace at work, he saw the repentance, he saw the potential, he was looking for someone, he took Mark. Uh, And then Mark becomes a, a significant figure in the history of the church because of the investment of Barnabas. So are you looking for someone? We can sum up all of this um, by by just the phrase, build up others. Two weeks ago in Acts 10, it's all about tearing down walls. This part of the passage is all about building up others. Let's be a church that's committed to building up others. In a world that wants to tear people down, build people up. In a world that wants to write people off, write them in. In a world that wants to look at someone's feelings and mistakes and mess and say you're not worthy, Be someone that sees into their life and says, I can see the worth that God has given to you. Let me help you uh, to be true to Christ and to walk in that. Let me teach you how to be kind to other people. Let me teach you how to take the gospel to the nations. Last thing to say, you don't need to have it all together and you don't need to know all. Whenever you talk about investing in other people, it's like, I don't know enough. I can't do enough. Here's the thing. Just start with what you know right? I know how to read the Bible. We can start there. I know I've made a bunch of mistakes in my own life. I can start there. I can share my failings. You know, young adults love to sit with you and hear all the ways you've screwed up, right? (laughs) Gives them a lot of hope. Teens love to hear the ways that you've screwed up because it's like, my parents are not perfect, and they, and I know they're not perfect, and it's nice to know that they know they're not perfect too. (laughs) So it's reassuring. Start with what you know. 
Just give them what you do have and create a space to be heard, a space to be known, and a space to be loved. If our church would be known by that, people would be flocking to be in our presence. Uh, your schedule will be filled with these young men and women wanting to invest in you. Um, let's be a church that builds others up.